And so when my therapist said that it was a form of denial, it was it was kind of an eye opener because if I'm just thinking about the what ifs, the moment before the crash, then I'm stuck in that past where they're still alive. And in a way, part of my brain wants to be there because they're still alive, right? If I'm in that car before the crash, I'm with my living children, and there's a even though it's horribly painful, there is a certain there's a certain desire or temptation to be there but but being there is in denial because i did make that turn and we were hit and they're and they're gone now and that was helpful to me to realize right denial is not my friend because denial means that i'm living in the past and and here i am in the present um and i'd rather be in the present where i can mourn my children and live and live in a way that honors them and makes them proud rather than being, you know, trapped in a in a fantasy past. Hello and welcome to Grief, Gratitude and the Gray in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right in to today's episode. On today's podcast, we will be chatting with Colin Campbell. He is a writer and director of theater and film. His most recent book, and the one we'll be talking about today, is Finding the Words, Working Through Profound Loss with Hope and Purpose. And he also has a one-man show, which we will be talking about too. It's titled Grief, a One-Man Shit Show. So I already said the word shit right here in the intro, so you know it might be mentioned in the podcast as well. So welcome to the podcast, Colin. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I am so happy you are here and grateful to, you know, your contact person that reached out to have you on and sent me your book that I was able to read through and get to learn more about you, about your wife, Gail, and your story and your beautiful children who are the reason we are here today, Ruby and Hart. So we'll be sharing your journey of bereavement and grief and lots of other things throughout it. So let's uh, talk about you. Tell me where you and Gail live at the moment, and we'll kind of navigate that way. Yeah. So we live in Los Angeles, the Silver Lake neighborhood of Los Angeles. And we've been living here for 23 years. So this is our first and only house we ever bought, uh, and we love it here. So you've stayed there. How is it transitioning, uh, living in a home now that Ruby and Hart are, you know, have passed away. And by the way, let's let's clear that out. What word would we will we use? Pass away, die, transition. What um, word? I I preferred died or killed. Actually, they okay, were killed because... in a car crash by a uh, by a drunken high driver uh, on in June June twelfth two thousand nineteen. And it's a great question. Thank you for asking that. It is. It is such a challenge. What do you do with their rooms, right? And and the space that, that we're living in 
is just a constant reminder of them. Um, and so at first it, it was so painful to be here. And we thought, I mean, maybe we need to, to move, but then how can we, how can we leave this home? Because it's filled with all these memories of Ruby and Hart. Every corner of it is special. Um, and so I think that was a, a kind of valuable early lesson of leaning into the pain because that's how we get to the joy of it, of the memories. So, uh, you know, first handling their rooms, we, we left them as they, as they were the night of the crash. We were on a, on a family trip out to Joshua Tree. Joshua Tree, for those of you who don't know, it's about uh, two and a half hours east of Los Angeles, the high desert. It's a beautiful little town attached to Joshua Tree National Park, which is an amazing, enormous park full of beautiful Joshua trees and these amazing rock clusters. And Ruby and Hart and Gail and I love to go there. We love to scramble on the rocks. They're just amazing climbing rocks. They're so fun. You just head out and have an adventure, basically, and, and get treated to spectacular views of the desert. And so over the years, we've been going there off and on, uh, you know, over and over again. And so in June of 2019, Gail suddenly thought, let's just, let's buy a vacation home there. And we thought, oh my God, that would be amazing. Could we really do that? And we looked at some properties and found one that we all loved. And we were so excited to have a place there of our own. And so the night of the crash, we were actually going there to our brand new vacation home uh, because the next morning I was going to meet with the contractor to talk about building a pool out there and building an extension for Ruby and Hart. Uh, so it was a really beautiful, exciting moment for us in our lives that was then tragically cut short. Um, so yeah, so we came back from that trip, just Gail and I, to an empty home. And it was so terrifying. And like I said, the, we kept those those rooms the way they were for about a year. Uh, we didn't really touch anything in them. And the, the room still had their scents. And uh, and then at a certain point, it felt like to us that that we had sort of sequestered that portion of our life away. They were sort of locked away in their rooms in a way. And we wanted to spend more time in the rooms. We wanted to spend more time with their things. And so we uh, we started to use their rooms more and change things in their rooms. Um, so instead of Ruby had a, a, a cork board and we added to her cork board. And then we took a further step, which is uh, even more sort of emotionally challenging, but potentially potentially full of joy, which is we are now uh, fostering to adopt two, two young children, a brother and sister. Oh, wait, that's new since your book, because in the book you mentioned one one girl that you had. Well, I shouldn't. Again, readers, you have to go in to know more. <laughs> but also, this is new. OK, this yeah, is good. To yeah. Hear. So, yeah, it's all it's all in process, of course, <laughs> life is. But in the when we, I wrote the book at the time that I finished the book, we had been fostering to adopt a teenage girl and in the end, she opted not to. She said, you know, no, I don't want to be adopted at all. I changed my mind. And it, it really is, it sounds cliche, but it, it was really because the vulnerability uh, of feeling loved was too painful for her. Uh, she wanted to be in a foster home where they ignored her because she was how used long to had she been? That's what I was, how long had she been in the foster system that it was so hard uh, for her to, 
to feel well, all that love? She'd only been in the foster system for about three years, but prior to that, she lived in very challenging circumstances. Mm. Um, very, very, very difficult childhood. So her, her whole life was was one of uh, uh, chaos and neglect. And so she wasn't wasn't ready, unfortunately, to be adopted. And, and we had to allow her to leave because she has rights I, as a 15-year-old. So that, uh, that that's why, as you were saying, that you have two small children now that you're fostering, in the book, I was crying in that part when mm-hmm. when you guys went through that because then here I'm thinking of another grief that you're experiencing again, right? Yes. You opened up your heart, but now you knew you had that possibility of loving. That love continued. Just you know, you could you know you know still share that love on fostering after having gone through that grief, and then there you were kind of like you were not sure if we're gonna continue right. going through that road. So. <laughs> I'm happy that you continue opening uh, your heart. So thank, thank you, you for sharing that. The yeah. the book has so many things. I'm going to share a little bit of the structure, or at least of what I got from the book. Not only do you share your story, but then at the end of every chapter, you go over action steps for the reader, some takeaways, and then journaling prompts as well. Mm. So it's this handout kind of workbook and at the same time your story in it and it's just it's it's beautifully done so just want to say that this is the first book I know you're a writer and screenwriter is this the first book you write yes yes it is so I've written plays and screenplays this is the first book how different was it writing a book and a very personal book than what it's been for you of the process of writing screenplays yeah well that's that's a great question um very different in that uh here i was speaking to an audience in a very personal and direct way i wasn't trying to create something to entertain somebody i was i was really prompted to help yeah and and like you said my book is full of, of actions to take and that's really what i was struck by in my early grief which is what am i supposed to do you know, what do I do with this grief? What do I actually do? What what does it mean to mourn? And so taking action was really important to me. Uh, and I guess it's a lesson I learned from screenwriting, which is the idea that, you know, a, a passive protagonist versus an active protagonist and passive protagonists allow the life to just happen to them. Mm-hmm. And they're they're generally quite boring on the <laughs> on the screen, yeah. and it's it, and you mentioned it in it that you you shared a in a class right. You were also a professor, mm-hmm. so in so that yeah. you were telling that to your students regarding the screenwriting. So yeah, I, I studied theater. So as I was reading, that was my major oh. is theater. So as I'm reading this, of course, I'm also intrigued by your life as uh, as an <laughs> actor, screenwriter, all these things. So I love yeah. I love that that analogy. So then in that active protagonist, what do they do? So an active protagonist is is more is more engaged with their life. They're making decisions, they're making choices. And I, I was reading up on trauma and I was struck by um the, the insight that I got from from these books on trauma, which is that people who are able to take action suffer a lot less PTSD. Uh, and in fact a lot of trauma results from a feeling of helplessness. Um, that you that you're you are just helpless in the face of of a traumatic experience, but if you're able to take action, it helps you to process that and work through it. Uh, and so 
this idea of taking action seemed really important to me in my early grief, for sure. I saw a lot of that throughout your book, a lot of action in your own life. Starting off, of course, with the rituals that were part of your the religion that you raised your children in and that your wife and now yourself, but that, that, that in itself, let's, we're going to, I'm going to be talking about that, by the way, of, um, of spirituality and your beliefs as well. So let's talk about Shiva and how that, that week was so important in your grief. And that meant action because that meant hosting people every night, whether you wanted it or not. So yes. share a little about how it was for you to experience Shiva. Yes. Yeah, so so I'm not Jewish. Um, I was raised by uh, two white Anglo-Saxon Protestant parents who were raised by white Anglo-Saxon Protestant parents, and they rebelled against their parents. And so they raised their families atheists. And I, I love being raised as an atheist, <laughs> um, but it doesn't come with a lot of cultural rituals and cultural practices. And so uh, when I married Gail, she's Jewish and her Judaism meant a lot to her. And so we raised our children, Ruby and Hart, as Jews. Uh, so they were born bat mitzvahed, um, which means they are, uh, well, it's a lot, of, it's a big process that they have to go through uh, to become essentially adults in the Jewish community. Uh, and I really helped them with that process. Uh, you know, we learned how to read Hebrew together. Um, and it was very meaningful to me to see, to be part of this community. So I actually really enjoyed being part of a temple, even as a non-believer. Uh, and our temple, which is called Ikar in Los Angeles, it's a beautiful temple. And they welcomed me as a, as a atheist, non-Jewish member. I really felt welcome there. And uh, that was very beautiful. And then when Ruby and Hart were killed, my temple community really came came to support us in a huge way. And so uh, I didn't know how to mourn. I really didn't know anything about grieving uh, other than that it was terrifying. And so I really leaned into the Jewish practices. And uh, for those of you who don't know, sitting Shiva is what uh, Jewish people do when they lose a loved one. And what it means is for a week, every night, uh, your community comes and, and literally sits with you in your home, hence sitting Shiva. And some prayers are said and people bring food. And it was it was shocking to me to experience it on the inside because it being struck with such monumental, terrifying grief, the last thing I wanted was to have a bunch of people come to my home. It, it seemed like, no, that's a terrible idea. You know, I, I want to be left alone. But then something happened, which is I discovered that I really wanted to talk to all these loved ones. I wanted to talk about Ruby and Hart, and I wanted to talk about my grief. I'd been sitting marinating all by myself, well, Gail and I together by ourselves, marinating in this awful pain and just feeling like um, like we were the recipients of it, you know, it was just hitting us. And then here's a chance to actually express ourselves to other people. And it was so empowering. And I saw amongst my circle of friends and Ruby and Hart's friends, they, they, they talked also at the, at Shiva each night and to see these kids share their love of Ruby and Hart was so powerful. I was like, wow, this is necessary. 
And it was an eye opener for me because it, it taught me so many lessons about grieving. It was like, oh, we have to talk about our grief. We have to share stories about Ruby and Hart. That's what grieving is. It's not about sitting all by ourselves and just feeling sad until we miraculously feel better, which is what I thought grieving was. So that was really a, an, an amazing eye opener for me. There were several instances and in the stories that you shared in the chapter of talking about Shiva and one of them being how your brother wasn't able yet to share a story and how you kind mm -hmm. of helped him guide a, uh -huh. a little anecdote of, of something. So if you can share that anecdote, because in that anecdote says a lot about the type of personalities you all have. You share that humor mm -hmm. and dark humor were really <laughs> big in your family yeah. and in your kids. So sharing a story that could be a little silly or dark. I think you guys were trying to scare the kids, right? Yeah. So it's sort of one of my favorite Ruby and Heart stories. And it, uh, it's a little perhaps off color in a, in a grief podcast, but I'll share it for sure. Which is, we would always go every summer to, to Maine, where my mom has this house by this lake. And it's a beautiful, beautiful place. But down the road, about a full mile down a dirt road, is an old cemetery, an old family cemetery. And some of the tombstones are literally from the 1700s. And they, they've, they're covered in moss and many of them have fallen over. Like it's a, it's a, it's, if you could imagine like a terrifying small family cemetery, this is it. It's perfect. Right. And to get there, you have to walk a mile through the woods. Like, wow. Uh, and these are, these are woods, woods without trees and without, sorry, without trees, without homes. Um, uh, and so it's a, it's a scary walk. And for fun, I said to Ruby and Hart when they were young, when Ru Ruby was maybe 12 and Hart was nine, I said, hey, guys, here's a fun idea. <laughs> How about the two of you just go for a walk to the cemetery at night and get a grave rubbing, which means you take a piece of paper and a crayon and you rub it on a, on a tombstone and get the image and bring it home. And they were terrified. But they were super psyched. It was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be a real like brother sister adventure, right? They're going to get flashlights, and Ruby made like this this sharp stick to fight off vampires and werewolves, and she had a special potion, and 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 yeah, it was going to be a real brother sister adventure. Uh, and I was like, great, let's go, go for. It. I'll pay you twenty bucks each, and they went for it. And then they headed out, and my brother and I were like, we got to up the stakes for these kids. So we we snuck out after them. Also, first, we were also scared. Like, they were gone for a while. And of course, it takes a long time to get there, right? So sometimes I was like, wait, maybe this is a terrible idea. <laughs> what if they got lost in the woods? Or I don't know what. Uh, so so we decided we'd go out and, and see if we could find them. And we walked down the road, my brother and I, and then we saw their lights coming towards us. We had little flashlights. And so we hid in the trees. And then he and I both were like, oh, that's scared. And so I started howling like a wolf. And that didn't really scare them either. Like we hear them talking, and they were just like, "Oh, what's that? What's that?" And they kept on walking, chatting with each other. It was really beautiful. And then we raced back to the woods. My brother and I took shortcuts through the woods, so we get back to the home. We're covered in like brambles and sweat. <laughs> but tried and, to and pretend you've faced. been sitting yeah. by the fireplace all day, <laughs> <laughs> just chilling. And they come in, and it's so obvious that we were just we just ran through the woods, but they didn't even notice. They were so excited that they got these grave robbings. They were just chattering away how proud they were and how great it was, the adventure. 
they didn't even notice that, that we had, you know, obviously had been running through the woods. And, uh, and so that was, it became actually a, a fun tradition. So each year we would do a, a bigger and bigger challenge for them to go through the woods and get a more specific grave running, you know, get to find one, you know, from the year 1880 to 18 to 1890. And so it make it more difficult for them. So, yeah, so it was a fun tradition we did each year. And I, the reason why I asked my brother to share the story with me at Shiva was that it was coming, Shiva was coming to an end. It was like the, the last night of Shiva and he hadn't spoken at all. Uh, and I, I knew that he had said in the past that he had a hard time talking about uh, his feelings of grief. And and with Ruben Hart, it was so overwhelming. It was just too big. He didn't want to say anything. And they're the only, is, are they the only, they're the only yeah. grandkids on both sides, correct? Right. Oh, no, no, on my side. Oh, on, my oh, side. on your side only? Okay, on your side. Yeah. Okay, I knew that that was, yeah, okay, so, on your side. Yeah, so I have a brother and sister, and both of them don't have any kids. So so uh, from my side of the family, it was just Ruby and Hart. So I, I had seen how, I had experienced how powerful it was to share just anything, a story, a thought about Ruby and Hart. And I just, I wanted my brother to participate in it. And so I said to him, can we, can we tell a story together? And he agreed to that. And I thought, you know, I'm from theater background and uh, that I was, you know, I'll, I'll take the lead obviously. And he'll just chime in a little bit, but it'll feel like we both did it together and how beautiful that is. But when it came time to it, he really, he really led the story. And I just chimed in a little tiny bit. Uh, and afterwards he said, you know, he realized that if, if he let me, I would take over all the best parts. So he had to step up his game. <laughs> <laughs> so that was great. sweet. Um, yeah, so I'm, yeah, I'm really sharing memories, sharing memories and saying their names is so important. And that's something that you guys made sure to tell your friends. And I want to talk about mm. that. Something that I saw and that I witnessed in the, in that, and that you shared was how how do you say it? Uh, forward you were and straightforward, mm. straightforward you guys are both. I don't know if you guys are both like that in general or with, if your grief just kind of made you guys be more straightforward. Mm. But with sharing what it is you needed mm -hmm. and uh, from your support team, from your family, as well as uh, I love the letter writing component, Gail, yeah. before going to work, making sure this is a great tip for anybody when you read that chapter, just writing to your coworkers of what's happened and how you'd like your grief to be either respected or that you want to be asked questions about your children, all these different things. But yeah. let's talk about that part of how you guys express to your friends and mm -hmm. how you communicated what you needed from them in terms of your grief experience. Well, well, I, th I think we are, I've always been straightforward people, but for me personally, not about grief. I was not comfortable with grief, uh, other people's grief, other people's pain. Uh, as, as I said, I had no experience with that. So uh, in, in the past, if somebody else had a, had a loss, I think I would generally have, have stepped back and like, you know, quote unquote, waited for them to reach out to me, right? Which is a classic, classic thing that we experience as grievers, people holding back and not, not wanting to bother us. <laughs> um, and meanwhile, we're left alone and feeling, feeling abandoned. And so, uh, so I, I learned this very valuable lesson from Shiva that, that I needed to talk about Ruby and Hart and my grief. And it, it, it gave me so much solace. And it's all that I was thinking about, you know. But then when people came to visit me, I could see them walk through the front gate 
uh, to our house and they looked stricken and didn't know what to say. Like they literally wouldn't know even to say, hello, how are you? Because it was too terrifying. Uh, what if what if that was going to upset me? You know, what do you mean? How am I doing? How do you think I'm doing? You know, I don't know what if they're imagining, but um, and so here I was needing to have conversations with my family and friends, and then being greeted with this this sense of being terrified of saying the wrong thing, and it just seems so clear that we had to lay down some kind of guidelines to help them so we could have conversations, and so I developed and Gail and I developed what we call our grief spiel which is we pull the person in. Can, can I say that I had no clue yes. that the word spiel was a Yiddish word until I ah. read your book? It was my first <laughs> time knowing. So I'm like, oh, nice. it's a Yiddish. So I learned something <laughs> new too. So yeah, so nice. your grief spiel, your work spiel, your all this. So your grief spiel. Yeah, yeah the grief spiel was just basically a lot, giving, giving my friends permission or, or to talk about Ruby and Hart and my grief letting them know that they couldn't trigger me. So many people were scared of triggering me, right? What if they said Ruby and I, and I just fell apart? So they wouldn't say Ruby and Hart's names. But I was desperate to hear Ruby and Hart's names. I, you know, what, what, they're supposed to be erased from my life now that they're gone? No, I, I need to talk about them. And so I told my friends that. I said, you know, you can't trigger me. I'm, I'm triggered all the way. My, my children were just buried. I just buried my children, you know, a week, a week ago. Um, that's all I want to talk about. You, you can't upset me more than I'm already upset. And it was a real eye opener to my friends. And they were so grateful uh, because they're, they're desperate to help, but they don't know how. And again, they're terrified to say the wrong thing. And so I told them that there really is no wrong thing. Or if they did say a wrong thing, I, I would correct them. I'm not, I'm not shy. <laughs> not correct them, but I would, I would let them know uh, that that phrase actually is hurtful. For example, people would say, uh, would refer to the, the car crash as an accident, which makes a lot of sense. Oh, you know, kids were killed in an accident. And actually, I said it wasn't an accident because she was drunk and high when she hit us. And she didn't accidentally get into her car drunk and high. That was a choice she made. And an accident sounds like uh, too friendly <laughs> to me. And other people may, might feel very differently. But the point was, by sharing what how I felt, my friends knew that and then they could they could could use the language that helped me, and they wanted to do that. They wanted to use the language that would help me. So yeah, I, I, and then my grief spiel changed too as I, as my grief changed. So in the early days, I really I didn't want to talk about anything else. I couldn't talk about the weather or politics, right? So I told my friends that I said basically no, I, I you know you I don't want to talk about anything else, or I can for like a minute or two, but then we have to talk back about Ruby and Hart and my grief because I'm in acute pain right now. But that, that feeling of acute grief changes. I'm no longer in acute grief. And I can certainly talk about other subjects now. And I'm happy to talk about other people's grief, other people's losses, other people's struggles. But in acute grief, I really wasn't. So, uh, so yes, my, my grief spiel changed as my grief changed and my needs changed. And it was, it was very helpful. Can you talk about, as you're there's two things uh, right now that came to mind as you were talking. Let's talk about the part of survival, survival guilt that you talk about mm -hmm. in the survivor's guilt that you talk about in the book. And when you kind of had to switch it to keep moving forward in life. So, and, and, and what yeah. guilt also meant, right? Cause guilt also meant like still remembering them, but uh, yeah. So mm -hmm. talk about that 
slightly. Again, I don't want to give away yeah. your whole book, but <laughs> just some insights, please. Yeah, well, well my therapist had a, had a really helpful insight about guilt, which was that it was a form of denial. That here I am reliving the moment of being in the car and making the turn before she hit us and and being feeling trapped in that moment, the what ifs, right? I think I think many of us in in grief are plagued by the what ifs. You know, what what if we'd done something differently and they could still be alive? And it's such a painful place to be. And it's such an unhelpful place to be. Because it's not really uh, I, I think the pain of grief is so necessary and important and, and helpful. We have to feel that pain because that comes from love. You can't shortcut it. You can't compartmentalize it or skip over it. But the the suffering that comes from being trapped in guilt or replaying those what ifs are so unhelpful because I'm not really in that moment honoring Ruby and Hard or thinking about my love or our life together. I'm just... I'm just stuck in a very ugly place. Um, and so when my therapist said that it was a form of denial, it was, it was kind of an eye opener because if I'm just thinking about the what ifs, the moment before the crash, then I'm stuck in that past where they're still alive. And in a way, part of my brain wants to be there because they're still alive, right? If I'm in that car before the crash, I'm with my living children, and there's a, even though it's horribly painful, there is a certain, there's a certain desire or temptation to be there. But, but being there is in denial because uh, I did make that turn and we were hit and they're, and they're gone now. And that was helpful to me to realize, right, denial is not my friend because denial means that I'm living in the past and, and here I am in the present. Um, and I'd rather be in the present where I can mourn my children and live and live in a way that honors them and makes them proud rather than being you know, trapped in a, in a fantasy past. And their, their personalities and some of the things that you even share throughout the book of, is it Hart's Bar Mitzvah, the things he said, you even share mm. the speech he did there. Those also... Yeah. Helped you. So they kept guiding you and teaching you even how to grieve with things they had said even <laughs> in the in the past, how you would just switch a yeah. few words and it already made sense even in your own grief of something your own children had said or how they'd behaved in their life. So it's uh, yeah. so beautiful. Let's talk oh, about the element of identity because, mm. again, these were your two only children you and Gail's yeah. children. So let's talk about the identity and the secondary losses that come with that aspect of no longer having your two children living now and what that means in yeah. the secondary losses of future. Yeah, if you don't mind yeah. touching on that, even though it's, yeah, I know no. it's emotional. I get emotional even asking that question, but I know it's uh, important to talk about too. It, yeah, it is. It is. I think anybody struggling with grief, a big part of that is is because it touches their identity. It's who they are. So if you lost your best friend, part of who you are is you're the best friend of this person who's now deceased. Or you're the spouse of this person or the sibling or the child or the parent. And so, uh, so we lose a a real key element of who we are. And that's part of why we're in such profound grief 
and so much pain. And for me, I, I was, I was a dad. I was Ruben Hart's dad. That's who I was. Um, above everything else, you know, even above my wife's husband or my mom's kid. Like, I was Ruben Hart's dad. That's who I was. And so, without them, I was pretty lost. You know, who who am I now? And I realized that it touches with it touches on everything. Them not being here, it affects my relationship to everybody, because, you know, so many of my friends, our relationship was somehow connected to Ruby and Hart in some way. Like many of my friends, I met them because their children were friends of Ruby and Hart's, and even even my own family. You know, part of who I was in the family was Ruby and Hart's dad. I brought Ruby and Hart home for Christmas. You know what I mean? And so our relationships just have to change because because of this death. And I have to sort of redefine myself. And each time it it hurts because you don't want to. <laughs> you don't want to redefine yourself. I wanted to be Ruby and Hart's dad, uh, first and foremost. Uh, of course, I am still Ruby and Hart's dad. I but... was gonna say that. I just, <laughs> I was gonna say right. it's still you still. But of course, it's that aspect of not the, yeah. I, yeah. Go oh, ahead. Yeah. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not the the dad of living children. So, right. so now you're not driving them to to school, taking them to right. sports, all those kind of things that also were part of your day to day. That now the Uber yeah. driver, uh, that like you said, you were the one to take them to the. <laughs> family celebrations that you also then had to modify a little bit. You were that person that brought them there. Mm-hmm. You were the person that took them to school that did this. Now that role yeah. is gone as well. Yeah. And, and redefining who we are. Um, and, and what's, what's, what's painful is, you know, first I didn't want to be the father of dead children. I wanted to be Ruby and Hart's dad and they're alive. Uh, and I gradually had to accept that, that I was a father of dead children. And then just when I'm getting sort of <laughs> adjusted to that identity, that further shifts. Because now when I meet somebody, I don't immediately introduce myself as, hi, I'm Colin. I'm the father of two dead children because life continues. And and that's painful. That's hard to adjust to. It's not the headline in my in my life. It is in my heart, <laughs> but not in my daily life. And so now when I meet people, it's, well, I'm, I'm fostering to adopt two kids. That sort of comes first in a way. And I think that's true for all of us in grief as life goes on. It's hard. It's hard to adjust to that, um, that we're no longer in acute pain. It, it seems like it's great. I don't want to be in acute pain. <laughs> I don't want to be in acute grief. I want to be in life, uh, grieving still, but in life. Uh, but even that has has a special emotional challenge. I know it's hard. Sometimes those things, those hit me really hard. Secondary losses, mm. I feel sometimes are the ones that end up coming up more in our day-to-day that bring up the grief a lot of right. times, right? More right. than the actual instant itself. Like these other things that are constant reminders of the mm-hmm. could have could have been or the you know those those things yeah. i want to talk about your birthday because you mm. had your 50th birthday and 
you guys had already planned something big for this birthday, but it was just a few months after it was a few months, correct? A couple uh, months. Uh, June, July, two, two months, three, yeah, two months, three months after the crash. After two they, after, after, crash. after after they were killed and yeah. you're, you already had a plan. You guys kind of shifted and changed it. It is such a beautiful, beautiful <laughs> honoring <laughs> thing that you did. Would you please share how you shifted in honor to honor Ruby and Hart? Yeah, yeah. So every year I would throw for my birthday this huge beach party. I called it my beach birthday bash. And I would invite my friends and Ruby and Hart's friends, Gail's friends. And it really felt like such a family friendly, fun day at the beach. And I, I, I never wanted presents. And I always just wanted to buy everybody their own individual sandwich. For some reason that was important to me. I don't know where I got the idea, but like, so I would tell everybody, you have to tell me what you want on your sandwich and I'm going to order it. And you'll have a delicious sandwich there at the beach with me. And that's how I want to celebrate my birthday. And, and then, uh, and then everyone would gather at the beach and it'd be very chill because it's just the beach, but I'd have games. So it would often, we'd play, um, dodgeball. Uh, so it was a big giant game of dodgeball or a couple of years we did volleyball. We did beach bingo a couple of years and everyone would jump in the ocean. And that was my, and we stay all, all day. So we stay until, until the sunset and, and the four of us loved it. And in fact, every year, the four of us would at some point kind of just sneak away from all the guests and the four of us would swim out past the breakers. Uh, I taught Ruby and Hart very early on how to swim in the ocean safely. And we loved the big waves and diving under the waves and suddenly being out, you know, past the breakers in this beautiful, calm moment, just the four of us. And so three months now after the crash, it's my birthday, it's my 50th birthday. And I didn't want to celebrate. I didn't want to have a party, right? What a terrible, terrible idea. I was in so much pain. And then I realized, well, here's another chance, yet another chance to gather my community and honor Ruby and Hart. And how could I, how could I pass that up? And a lot of friends were very nervous for me and family members. They thought it would be emotionally too much because here I'm going to invite Ruby and Hart's friends. I'm going to see them now. Without Ruby and Hart, I'm going to see all my friends um, and having a party at the beach. Like this is going to be a disaster potentially. I, I said, I want to get everyone their sandwiches still. I want to still do the sandwich orders. And they said, you can't do that. You're, you're in fresh grief. That's too big of a burden. Uh, it's all going to be too painful. And, and I said, no, I, I want to do it. Uh, because every year, my, my wife will get mad if I don't mention this, but every year she, of course, offered to do the sandwiches. She's like, I, I can arrange for your birthday party. Why are you doing all the work on your birthday? And it was important to me that I order the sandwiches every year. I don't know why. I'm <laughs> just like, no, I'm in charge of the sandwiches. It's my birthday party. <laughs> um, and so, so here it was again. Someone wanted to take that role away from me. And I was like, no, I want to order the sandwiches for my guests. Uh, but it's not going to be my birthday. It's going to be a memorial for Ruby and Hart. It's not a birthday party um, and absolutely no presents. <laughs> uh, we're going to have a birthday. We're going to have a memorial for Ruby and Hart instead. And twice as many people showed up that year <laughs> in honor of Ruby and Hart. So it was actually a much bigger gathering than usual. And I was overwhelmed with how many sandwich orders there were. <laughs> and I actually got a friend to help me because there were so many sandwiches. But still, I, I, I did them. Uh, and it was meaningful to me. But then... 
my friend, the same friend who, who helped me with the sandwiches, uh, Mark, he said, what, what kind of ritual do you want to do? Because he knew that I wanted to do it. I had started doing these rituals inspired by Jewish rituals of mourning. And I said, I don't really know what I should do with this group of people on a beach. And he suggested, what if everybody bring a rock and we spell Ruby and Hart's names on the beach? I thought that would be beautiful. And, uh, and we put the word out and everyone brought rocks. Everyone really spent time and chose special rocks for Ruby and Hart. And even friends on the East Coast, they, would sh they, would, they shipped rocks out. They, they went, found special rocks and then mailed them to us to be part of the ceremony, which is really beautiful. So we had a big pile of rocks. And when the time came to spell out Ruby and Hart's names, people looked to me and said, how do we do it? H how big should each letter be? And I, I just had this moment of realization that I, I didn't want to be in charge. I wanted everybody to just put a rock in the sand and just make it. I didn't want to be like, you do this and you do that. It will be more meaningful if everybody stepped forward and placed their rock where they wanted to place it. Uh, and, and miraculously, it was perfect. I don't know how it worked, but everybody made the exact right size letters so that all the rocks were used spelling Ruby, ampersand, heart. Uh, and with a heart, I think, on either side. And all the rocks were used and was a perfect size. And we gathered around it and held hands and cried. And then we all just screamed out Ruby and heart and jumped in the ocean. Because by then I really knew how important it was for me to hear their names out loud. And they all knew that, the crowd of people knew that. So all I had to do was say, can we all say Ruby and heart? And then we shouted out Ruby and heart, we love you, and then we all raced into the ocean, and it was beautiful. And I, I don't know, there were 140 people there, something like that. It was amazing. Wow. Yeah, it was wow, a huge I gathering that of love. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's a lot so of sandwiches. Beautiful. And then the yeah, a lot of sand. The this <laughs> the some symbolic also aspect afterwards of this ocean afterwards, mm -hmm. you know, going to be naturally taking the rocks yep. away. That vi I, I'm a visual person. So as I'm reading this and just envisioning, just allowing nature yeah. to kind of take its course and then, you know. Yeah. And it, and it did by the end, by the end of the day, I, I think they were all washed away by the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the all the letters, all the rocks. Very symbolic. Okay. The next question I had, or have you, is that aspect you mentioned about growing up atheist and then the part yeah. of now incorporating the rituals of Judaism into your life and particularly in your grief. Mm. In the aspect of prayer, you you had a very beautiful way, because I'm always very curious. I am a, a, a uh. I do believe in God and so I I've always been curious as to people that don't believe in God, how mm. that aspect of the, like you said, the, the afterlife, you're like, yes, it doesn't matter if you believe in afterlife, you're still in pain now, you know, that you have to honor mm. that. So true. It doesn't mean that just because if a person, if by chance you do believe that there's more, not all of a sudden, like be like, oh, they're in a better place, that, 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 all this. No, you're still in pain. Right. But yeah. let's, Talk about assimilating the the ways that you integrated the word love. I love how you did that. Love wow. in place of God, <laughs> as you kind of would read, you kind of assimilated with the word love. 
please share that because I feel that this could be very helpful for someone else that may be struggling mm. with that aspect of God in their grief. Yeah. Yeah. What, there's so many prayers in, in Judaism, in any religion, <laughs> obviously they're prayers, and, and they all talk about God. And that's very beautiful if you believe in God. But if you don't believe in God, it can feel a little alienating. And so, but but I do believe in in love. I do believe in the power of love. And it, and it, it is a miracle. It is amazing, right? It is uh, something bigger than ourselves. And so in a way, I think it is kind of akin to God in that sense. And I, I think a lot of people who believe in God, they've told me that they also feel like, you know, God is love, right? So it makes a lot of sense to me. And so for myself sitting in synagogue all these years, uh, I've, I replaced God with love. And I, I really do believe in there's a, that, that, that love is sort of permeates all of us and it's this force. So it made a lot of sense to me. And then after Ruby and Hart were killed, it, those same prayers really, really made sense to me with, with love replacing God. And sometimes specifically the love I felt with Ruby and Hart, um, our love. Our love is sacred. Our love is is bigger than myself and mysterious uh, and a miracle. So yeah, sometimes I would just replace God with, you know, Ruby and Hart's love, and that helped me. It makes so much. It makes so much sense. And I, I think sometimes you know, just as to, as you mentioned in the book of the mystery of grief, like everybody grieves their way or that everybody that then it also leaves it kind of be like, what? like that there's this uh -huh. mystery. Same with God, right? It is this mystery. But at the same time, if we find things like this, that we associate as energy, as creative force, as something that like, oh, okay, I can, I, I can sign up for that belief, you know, and that, and that brings, yeah. that brings comfort in moments of hardship. If that brings solace, then Why not? That's what I tell my son. I'm like, you know, if we then die and everything was just like, oh, oh none of that was <laughs> true. Eh, well, it still made our lives feel meaningful. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so right. attaching to love, I, I, I love that. So thank you for sharing. Let's oh. talk about your one man show, Colin. So uh, we will, yes. this of course here, we talked about your book and again, it's finding, oh my gosh, now I'm like, That I have to look for the title because now I want all I'm thinking about is the uh, the name of your of your so finding the words working through profound loss with hope and purpose and how people can find it. Yes. So, yeah, you can find it on at any bookstore online or any bookstore in person after March 14th when it comes out. But you can also go to my website, which is Colin Campbell And that has links to, to pre-order the book right now. And then obviously order it once it once it's once it comes up, uh, March fourteenth, twenty twenty three, and uh, and so my one man show, my solo show, because that that process was you started yeah tell us when you started because yeah. that was before the book right it was it was before the book it was right after the right after Shiva I, I clearly still needed a had a need to express myself, <laughs> and I'm from the theater world, and so I started writing uh, a one a one person show. Uh, and in my mind, I, I thought it was like stand up. I don't know where I'm coming from, but I thought it was like so full of dark, dark humor. 
and as you mentioned, my 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 whole family, Ruby Hart, Gail, and I, we love humor and dark humor and and joking around and um, and so it made sense that I was. It, it can feel so absurd, uh, grief. So so absurd in the sense of of like this is crazy. What's happening and how people behave and how I feel. My thoughts, the thoughts that are going through my mind, are so crazy. I just wanted to express that, and so I started writing this monologue. And it started off just being a couple of pages and I showed it to my wife and she said, you have to keep writing. Uh, I love this. And so I kept writing and now it's a, it's a full length show. And I I basically finished it about five months after the crash and I was going to perform it. And I'm so grateful that I did not perform it then because it was just too close. It was too raw. I couldn't get through uh, you know, just reading it out loud without crying several times. <laughs> and you don't really want to see some guy crying on stage. You don't want that. <laughs> it's not necessary. So, uh, and I kind of would have been like that. But then the pandemic struck. So I couldn't perform it. So the whole world went into lockdown. And Gail and I actually went to Joshua Tree to our home, which became our grief retreat. It's a place we feel close to Ruby and Hart because they love Joshua Tree. And so it's a little grief retreat. That's where we went to during the pandemic when the, the initial lockdown. And I started writing the book because I couldn't do the show. And now uh, that theaters are open again, I started doing my show. So I did it over this past summer at the Hollywood Fringe Festival. Uh, and it, it, it went really well. I didn't know how it would be received. It's, it's very dark. It's, it is comedic. People, people will laugh quite a lot and they're surprised that they're laughing and the humor is dark. <laughs> it's not light humor, uh, but it's also, uh, rather raw because I wrote it back then. You know, I wrote it three years ago, very fresh, acute grief, but it really struck a chord with a lot of audience members. A lot of people were were grieving who came to see the show and they and they were very appreciative that I was talking about these things that are often taboo and I was bringing humor to it and 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 maybe some hopefully some insights especially for people who weren't in grief they also found found it very helpful because they understood on a d- deeper level or a different way their friends grief people who they who they loved who are grieving and I think just the whole subject is so taboo in our society people don't like to talk about it they're scared to talk about it and I think that only makes it worse for everybody. It makes it more scary and more isolating. So I feel a little bit of like a, you know, a, a missionary zeal for my show because I really do think that we need to talk more openly about grief. Hence why I have this podcast. Uh, yes, right. <laughs> exactly right. I agree. And I do not know at what point it became taboo if death, especially in certain time periods in which death was... It, was so much part of mm. everyday life in general. You know, you yes. watch period pieces and I mean, people would just bury. But, you know, I think a lot of times they would just carry, like I'll just do the British thing, like carry on. They would just have to uh-huh. kind of carry on with their lives because they just had to, right? A lot of times mm-hmm. too at that point, I don't know. I don't see sometimes the grief shown at length in certain period pieces, like you don't, do you, would you yeah. agree well, that well, with that? I, I think, so, yeah, I think certain periods, absolutely. But I think if you go back to like the middle ages, now I'm talking about Europe. More like rich, Europe, yeah, then Europe there's more centric, rituals. But mm-hmm. there's more rituals. So, uh, and I, I think, I think 
many societies in the past were more open and did have more public mourning, public grieving. And I think, I think specifically Western grief traditions have become more and more about, you know, medicalizing death. So it's no longer in the home, it's in the hospital now. And so, and, and people wanting to, or feeling like it's appropriate to not talk about it, to shut it away. And that it's too painful. But I think, I think many cultures are, are more open. I was talking to my dad the other day of so many things that we've experienced in this Western society now recently that are these common, common grief experiences that we've had, of course, the pandemic being one of those, mm, that yeah. it's opened up this portal of this conversation more. Yes. I feel it's showing up more and I see it. You're, you're, you guys being screenwriters and I've seen some of the shows that y- your wife writes in too. The topic of grief is showing up more mm-hmm. in what we're seeing as well. So when yeah. we when we start again making it part of our day to day, then it allows us now to live our grief because we're seeing it in in the shows we watch and the in right. the music we hear. Right? It's uh it's not as taboo hopefully anymore because we're ma- we're making it normal. We're you're doing a yeah. show that's you about it. <laughs> so tell us how people yeah. can watch. If, is it only in LA that you will be performing? Are you going to take it no. on the road? I, I'm taking it next to New York. So it has a three-week run in New York City at Theater Row. The theater's called Theater Row. And it's going to be there from March 29th till June. Sorry, March 29th till April 16th. And tickets are, are available at griefaoneman.shitshow.com. Or at, or at Theater Row's box office. And I hope to have it continue to have a life. Yeah, I, I imagine that um, I'll keep performing it elsewhere. And you've already even done little pieces. I'm sure you'll write a screenplay of, about grief because I know there was already a little thing there that you had already written. Yes. You know, with characters, of course, not your name, somebody else, Charles and something. what was <laughs> yes, the other? that's right. Some other name Gwen. Uh, for Gwen. No, yeah, Gwen and Charles. Uh, so you're like someday maybe that will be a, a show. I want to ask you: Is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners that I have not asked you? Oh, I don't think so. this has been so wonderful. It's just a great, like, in-depth discussion about grief. I love it. Uh, this is so nice. Thank you, Colin. I appreciate yeah. you sharing your journey, writing this book, creating a really beautiful manual. I don't, is that how you call it? Is that that oh, workbook? I don't, workbook I don't, too, because it's a story. Well, because yeah. of the journal prompts, if somebody right. goes in, if they don't want to hear your story and they just need journal prompts, just go at the end <laughs> of every chapter because there's different, sure. you know, rage, denial, guilt, go to the end of every chapter, look at the action items, look at the journal prompts. If that's all your brain right now has bandwidth mm. for during your grief, go to that section of the book and at least it kind of gets you through. Then afterwards they can go ahead and read the story <laughs> itself. That could be a way sure. of at least getting something done and some action in, in somebody's grief. But I appreciate yeah. you. I'll be sharing your links at the bottom here in the show notes. And thank you once Amazing. again for being here and sending love to Gail and to Ruby and Hart, sending oh. all that love thank back you. to you guys. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you.
thank you again so much for choosing to listen today. I hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief. If so, it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode. And if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone who may need to hear this, please do so. Also, if you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well, please reach out to me. And thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. Have a beautiful day.